Welcome to Palace Confidential, the weekly podcast all about the royal family where we assemble some of Britain's most fabulous experts and commentators and delve into the news coming out of the palaces to keep you royally clued up. I'm your host, Joe Elvin, editor of the Mail on Sunday's You magazine. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple and Google. And if you haven't already, why not sign up for the daily Mail Plus briefing at mailplus.co.uk, where you can also watch Palace Confidential on video. Hello and welcome to Palace Confidential. It's the Mail Plus show that rounds up all of the latest breaking royal news from all the palaces around Britain and, of course, the Sussexes across the water. It's been a busy one again. Here's what you've got to look forward to. Harry's got a real job. We'll discuss what sort of impact he can make. Plus, his complaints about how he and Meghan were treated mean that the Queen has announced a diversity drive for royal households. But how much can they change? And trooping the colour is off again. Find out why the cancellation means more than it might seem from the outside. First up, though, the royal PR fight back in the wake of that Oprah interview with Harry and Meghan continued apace this week as friends of Prince William spoke to the Sunday Times newspaper to defend him. Rebecca English, the Daily Mail's royal editor, is with us now to discuss this. Rebecca, coming to you first, what did you make of these comments and the timing of these comments? I thought this was a really interesting piece and very well researched. Obviously, it's a long time in the making, but it was quite timely and gave the supporters of the of Prince William a chance to hit back, I think, is what they saw as some of the more egregious comments made by Prince Harry. And the one that really stuck out to me, because it's something I thought long about, hard about, was Harry's claim that his brother and father feel trapped by the institution that they're in. And I, I think that's, that was probably true for William um, you know, some time ago, he did as a young man used to really rail against the fact that his life was being mapped out for him. But the the thing is, he's matured, you know, since then. And um, he's come to accept that he's in a very privileged position. And, you know, there's pros and cons about that, but it's one that he can use for great public good. So I, I was pleased to see that you know, that point put out there. And all, and also the point that Harry made that he would have never blindsided the Queen with his announcement um, because he had too much respect for her, which is just not true. Um, the Queen was aware that Harry was very unhappy, and I know this from my own sources, but but they had no idea he was going to put out the statement that he did when he did. And they had no idea that him and Meghan had spent months creating a Sussex Royal website to go along with it. Um, so she was blindsided. So it was good to see that addressed in the piece as well. But William did feel that Harry had done their grandmother quite a great disservice. Mm. Richard, for um, the people watching who aren't as big a media expert as, as you, as your good self, what to t- tell us about how this works. Is Are these comments the kinds of things that... Prince William would have authorised his friends to talk to the media about? Well, it was a very supportive piece. Um, So I think the people that the Sunday Times spoke to possibly would have asked Prince William if it was okay to speak. I mean, there were people off the record, but there was also Miguel Head, um, Prince William's former private secretary who worked for William and Kate for 10 years. And he spoke on the record. So I'm sure that he would have wanted to check with William and Kate that it was fine for him to speak. And I think because it was a generally positive piece, they were probably um, happy for for them to do so. Mm. Tessa, um, with Harry and Meghan sort of like not being working royals and being in Hollywood, they have the freedom to sit down with an Oprah Winfrey figure and tell their side of the story. But the royal family are 
limited in many ways to communicating through quote unquote friends Um, and in that way they are trapped aren't they what we're seeing here is this extraordinary cultural divide which i always think has been ignored in this hoo-ha concerning harry and Meghan and the kind of tussle between the two sides of the family it's that they're feeding into everything that makes culture in america american you know we will explain we will complain Whereas the royal family, in many ways, epitomizing all that is quintessentially old school British, you know, stiff upper lip, never explain, never complain. To an extent, it's a case of ne'er the twain will meet. And I'm interested by that William article. It was very much talking to a British audience. He is a very British man and his wife, again, quintessential English rose, I can't bear that expression, but you know, she went to all the right public schools and St. Andrews and so forth. And they are everything that the sort of traditional upper classes in Britain approve of. They're discreet, they're classy, they're understated. And Harry and Meghan, the reverse. And I think it's difficult for us in this country to understand why Harry and Meghan are working so well in America and whatever we say, all those job offers suggests they are going down well. Can I just object slightly to what Tessa said? Because remember that one of the key sort of things we always associate with the British royal family is that stiff upper lip. And um, William and Kate have worked so hard to change perceptions towards um, speaking about your mental health. And, you know, this idea that now it's Harry and Meghan are, you know, the people who are sort of in charge of spreading this message. It is very misleading because it's uh, William and Kate who've done so much to help change attitudes towards speaking out and being open about mental health, for example. But you can stamp your foot and go, it's not fair. Nothing's fair, especially not in the game of celebrity, Richard. Well, speaking of Harry, Rebecca, um, Harry's got himself a job. What, what do you two know jobs. about it? Yeah, two jobs, <laughs> Harry. How's, how's that all gone down? Well, yeah, so I mean, we were told that they were going to make quite a few announcements this month, and, and that's exactly what they've done. You know, Harry has announced that he has taken up a job as chief impact officer, whatever that means, uh, for Better Up, which is an American uh, startup company. Um, it deals with kind of online life coaching and mental health issues. Um, I mean, it, it's going great guns. It's already been valued at over a billion dollars. So, you know, if, if, as we believe, he's probably been given equity in the company, not a salary, this could be a big payday for him. Um, and obviously the company are great pains, as is Harry, to say he's not there because he's, you know, a former member of the royal family. He's there because of his championing of mental health issues. And I, I'm sure that's true. But obviously there has been great play on their website, the fact that it's Prince Harry, the Duke of Sussex. Um, and the second job he's got is... Um, as well, we don't know if it's being paid yet. I, I did approach his lawyers um, the other day about this, but they haven't got back to me. But he's going to be a commissioner for the Aspen Institute, which is launching a six-month review into disinformation and kind of fake news in America. And he's going to be part of a board that are examining and coming up with some solutions to that. Uh, you know, that, that I mean, uh, as I say, it's something he's spoken about quite a lot in the past so you can see that's kind of a natural fit as well gosh that sounds like proper work I know who would have thought (laughs) (laughs) I mean Tessa these uh, you know as far as commercial moves go these feel like pretty safe bets for Harry what do you think and considerable bets um Rebecca's right about uh, better up 
being potentially a big earner. I, my eye was particularly drawn to the Aspen deal. You know, this is all tied in with Catherine Murdoch. I think the only liberal Murdoch, she's the daughter-in-law of the son that fell out with, you know, Fox News and all the kind of right-leaning tendencies of the Murdoch empire. And what's interesting, it is the biggest think tank in America. And here is Harry sitting on effectively their board. He's one of their big thinkers over the next six months about disinformation, please note, in the American press. Um, and that suggests, no, that they're not tapping Harry up for his great brain. Uh, it's about his celebrity. It's about the puff that comes with him. So once again, I'm going to throw back to that idea that while we are kind of all a little bit sort of shocked, maybe even horrified and hurt by what Meghan and Harry have done, it's working for them in America. Richard, any commercial deal that Harry does is going to invite endless scrutiny, isn't it? Look, I've spent the week looking into these new jobs and they're just amazing, aren't they? You know, chief impact officer. You know, what on earth does it mean? Um, people have said it's actually quite common in the corporate world now, but it's, it's still left me bemused after a week. You know, I've got my business card here, which is this size, but can you imagine how big Harry's business card is going to have to be to include... <laughs> All his various titles. Well, don't get jealous, Richard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what's another one? You know, Commissioner on Disinformation. He said he, he wanted to, he'd voice concern about the avalanche of misinformation um, in the digital world. But, you know, people are saying, what about the avalanche of misinformation in his and Meghan's interview with Oprah? The Daily Mail, you know, dedicated six pages to going through and analysing all the half-truths and misinformation there. So it's, it's a very strange job for Harry to have, I think. I mean, and what's particularly interesting is, you know, that he's there with um, the daughter-in-law of Rupert Murdoch, who owns the son, that Harry and Meghan at the moment are suing over alleged phone hacking. So there's some very strange um, bedfellows here. No, but that, uh, Richard, just as we have dysfunction in our own royal family, in the Murdoch royal family, they also have dysfunction. And James married to Catherine, I think, if you recall, left the empire last year. So um, Harry is batting on the side of liberalism at the moment. And this is what's very interesting. He is using his title Duke and his Prince Harry title. Um, and yet at the same time, he's aligning himself with liberalism. And historically, that's never really happened before where you get the sort of liberal left championing somebody with an inherited title in quite this way. How much is he being brought on board with these projects because he has something to offer other than the fact of who he is. Will he ever escape his birthright? I mean, I, I suspect the answer is no. You know, he will always be there as Prince Harry, the Duke of Sussex. And there will always be people saying, look, he's only there because he was a member of the royal family. You know, but he's Rebecca, catching in on it. I don't think he wants to escape his birthright. Who are the biggest mm. fans of the royal well, that's, story? That's not what he said a year ago. Well... <laughs> What, what one says a year ago, frankly, darling, it's ancient history in this current story. It's moving okay. so fast. <laughs> well, it seems there's plenty of work to be done within the palace walls as well, as reports suggest this week that the firm is considering appointing something called a diversity chief. This, of course, follows the accusations from the Duke and Duchess of Sussex about racism within the royal family. For such an old institution, though, steeped in colonialism, is this kind of activity far easier said than done? Rebecca, lucky you, coming to you first. Do you think the palace have done this? Have they been sort of provoked and, and reacting to the Oprah interview? 
in a word, no, this is something they've been working on for a while, but clearly everything is being brought into much sharper focus because of the allegations being made against them by Harry and Meghan through the Oprah interview. Um, and I think I've said on this programme before, you know, the, the palace um, is surprisingly, although not, not brilliantly, diverse in the lower ranks, but it, it, it's not diverse in the upper echelons, and that's something they really need to take a long, hard look at. So I think the suggestion... Um, by one of my colleagues that they are going to get uh, diversity czar is, is not quite there yet, but it's something they're definitely not ruling out. And I think it's something they do need to take a long, hard look at. Richard, when William rather tersely told a reporter what, 10 days ago that we are definitely not a racist family, um, that seems this acceleration of finding this so-called, you know, diversity panel or diversities are seems like a tacit admission that they, they've got a lot of work to do. A lot of, there's some guilt there. Just so hard, isn't it? The position they were put into by Harry and Meghan. Certainly the gay um, community has been very well represented among the, um, the palaces over the years. And there's been plenty of um, prominent non-white members of staff as well. So they have had, made efforts on, on this side of things. What's your view, Rebecca? I feel like, you know, changing the inner workings of that institution is like trying to turn a cruise ship around with a piece of string. It's, it's so old and unwieldy. How do you, how do you make that change? And that's a, that's a really fair criticism. It can be very lumbering at times. And, and, and like a lot of big institutional establishment organisations, you know, this is something they probably haven't done enough on and they, need, they clearly do need to do more about. So I, I think like a lot of these places, there's got to be a sea change and it's got to come sooner rather than later. And if they don't do it, they're going to be in big trouble. Tell us, Tessa, your, your bag is European royalty. That's your area of expertise. They seem to be able to keep their houses in order without all this public squabbling, or, is, or am I wrong about that? I think there's been quite a lot on this. I noticed some quite prominent historians sort of citing Princess Madeleine of Sweden, you know, who lives, I think, in London under the wire. You know, why can't our royals be more like that? It's horribly naive. For, for the, in the first place, we forget that we were one of the big guns, the, you know, Imperial Britain, alongside Wilhelm of Germany and Tsar Nicholas. We had the fifth dollars hell, but he was attached to a giant empire. OK, so all your little piddling royalties belonging to relatively small, I know they successful in their own right, but Sweden, Denmark, Holland, who, you know, and then Britain, okay, we are much smaller now, but we have that extraordinary historic legacy tied crucially here to America. They look to us and our monarchy for a bit of glamour. They went through two world wars as our allies without a king or a queen, and they look to ours. Our queen ties them as well back to the Blitz. So in fact, Britain and the British monarchy, uh, through the, the oomph that America gives it, then reflected back through Hollywood and the crown and the movies, that's what makes our monarchy three-dimensional and stratospheric compared to little Denmark or, or little Sweden, Karl who, you know, etc. Forgive me, they're having a lovely time and inside their own countries they're relevant, but they don't have the international pull and remember, with that international pull comes tourism, comes money. With huge apologies to Denmark and Sweden, but thank you, Tessa. <laughs> <laughs> of course, a smaller monarchy would mean possibly a reduction in the pomp. And we're good at that, aren't we? And nothing says pomp and ceremony like Trooping the Colour, which sadly has been cancelled for the second year in a row. Last year, they performed a smaller version of the ceremony for the Queen's birthday privately. And there's talk that that will be a similar situation this year. Richard, Trooping the Colour, I... I, I per 
I'm not sure there'll be a bazillion hearts breaking. It's just another casualty of COVID move on, right? Or do you see it differently? I'm really sad about this. You know, the second year running, I mean, it's, you know, it's the highlight of the royal year with all the pomp and circumstance. And, you know, this year um, is the Queen's 95th birthday and it's her birthday parade. And, you know, how wonderful it would have been to have had everyone out there, all the troops. It would have been such a good celebration that we're hopefully seeing the back of this pandemic. And, mm. you know, with Prince Philip having just come out of hospital as well, you know, really would have lifted his spirits, I'm sure. So it's it's very sad that it's going to be, um, it'll probably just be a, a tiny ceremony, at, you know, in the Windsor Quadrangle again. Rebecca, do you think the Queen will be heartbroken about this? I'm not sure she'll be heartbroken, but disappointed. I mean, as Richard rightly says, it is the highlight, one of the highlights of the Royal Calendar, um, because I think it brings them in a, in a really kind of forward-facing role. I mean, obviously, you think of all the crowds it attracts, the balcony appearance, you know, how we love seeing, you know, the entire Royal family from old to young to big to small. You know, we, we see the children... You know, we see the fashion, we see the pomp, we see the ceremony, we've got the fly past, you know, it, it is a really big national occasion every year uh, and a big draw for tourists as well. So there will be a sense of disappointment. But I think the ceremony they did last year in the quadrangle at Windsor was was nonetheless kind of moving. And we, you know, they, they enabled the media brilliantly to get as much access as they could within COVID restrictions. So people will still get a flavour of it. But of course, yeah, it's, it's not going to be the same, sadly. Mm. And it is... As Richard said, it's the Queen's 95th, the Duke's 100th. And, you know, it, it, it would just be lovely to be able to, for everybody to share in that. However, we have the unveiling of the Diana statue, which may replace the Trooping of the Colour as the photo op, hopefully with both brothers. What do you think, Rebecca? I mean, as long as Harry can travel and Meghan's not, you know, in labour, he will, I mean, I've been told 100% he will be there. But of course, we don't know what the relationship was going to be with the brothers. I mean, Harry himself admits there's a massive gulf between them at the moment. When they left last year, the point was made to us royal correspondents, we would expect them and we would love them to be back at big events like Troop in the Colour. Um, but obviously, it would have been fascinating body language to see them on the balcony at Buckingham Palace after publicly machine gunning pretty much every member of the royal families. And with that, I'm afraid we have come to the end of another episode of Palace Confidential. But if you need more royal news, you can always head to mailplus.co.uk forward slash royals. Before we go, we'd just like to say a huge congratulations to Zara and Mike Tyndall on the arrival of their baby boy this week. That's the Queen's 10th great grandchild. See you next time.